0: Welcome to the Relevant Truth Podcast. My name is Roger Mason. This podcast is dedicated to examining biblical truth. The Bible is overflowing with relevant truth, useful in our everyday lives, thus the title Relevant Truth. The Bible was relevant to those that first heard it through the apostles and prophets. It is also timeless truth, which means it is relevant for us today in the 21st century. It is my hope that through this podcast, you will be both encouraged and challenged as we look at the Bible together. In today's podcast, we'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 1, examining a prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesian Christians. Looking at this prayer, we notice three specific things that Paul wanted them to know and understand. What Paul earnestly desired for them was that they would know God in their experience and grow in their relationship with Him. And so let's look at Ephesians chapter 1, reading verses 15 to 23. We'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for all saints... Do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come, And he will put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This passage gives us some insight into how Paul prayed for others. This is what Paul prayed for the believers at Ephesus. Look at verse 16. Paul says this, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. And in verse 17, Paul goes on to say that he is asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. When Paul talks about growing in your knowledge of God, he is not talking about acquiring academic knowledge. As good as that is. He's not talking about accumulating facts about God. As good as that is. He's not talking about getting your theology right. As good as that is. And he's not talking about making sure that your ideas about God are orthodox. As good as that is. Instead, Paul was concerned about growing in their knowledge of God which comes through our experience or our walk with God. As we experience God, we grow in our relationship with Him, and we grow in our understanding of Him, because we're getting to know Him as a person. It is a knowledge that is acquired through relationship. We grow in our relationship with God, getting to know Him personally and intimately as we walk with Him, as we communicate with Him, as He talks to us. This is the knowledge of God that Paul had in mind when he was speaking to the Ephesians. We can read every book ever written about D.L. Moody so that we know every detail of his life but we still will never know Him as a person, like those that lived with Him back in the 1800s. This same principle is true when it comes to knowing Jesus Christ. The knowledge of God that Paul was thinking about was not accumulated facts about God, but an experiential relationship with Him. Let us be quick to add that there is a supernatural aspect To this knowledge. Look at verse 17. Again, Paul was asking God to give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. That's Ephesians 1 verse 17. Notice that the purpose in having this wisdom and revelation is that you may know Him. Paul is talking about a disposition or an attitude that comes from the Holy Spirit. This is not something that can be developed apart from the Holy Spirit. The prophet Isaiah talked about the spirit of wisdom and understanding. Isaiah 11 and verse 2. Isaiah is speaking about Jesus, the Messiah, in this verse. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is that God would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. That the Ephesians would have this position, this attitude, this hunger to know God. Paul continues with his prayer in verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Why did Paul pray for the eyes of their heart to be enlightened? Verse 18 answers that question. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know. He wanted them to know something. Paul then introduces three things that he wanted them to know. In the NASB, each of these three things are introduced by the words, what is or what are. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. This is the outline of the message. Paul prayed that these believers would have the eyes of their heart enlightened to understand three things. First, the hope of his calling, secondly, the riches of his inheritance, and thirdly, the surpassing greatness of his power. The first thing that Paul wanted the believers to understand was the hope of his calling. Ephesians 1.18 from the NASB, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. The New Living Translation reads Ephesians 1.18 this way, I pray that your heart will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called. Ephesians 1.18 in the NASB uses the words, the hope of his calling. This can be confusing. God has called all men to become followers of Jesus Christ and hope is wrapped up in this calling. Ephesians 1:18 in the New Living Translation makes this phrase much clearer. It says, "the confident hope he has given to those he's called." Those who respond to God's call to become a follower of Jesus are given a confident hope. There are two things here we need to think about and consider: God's call and hope. So let's talk about this call that God extends to us. God's call gives us purpose. It gives us something to live for. God also gives us gifts to fulfill the calling that he has given us. All this is wrapped up in the call of God. Let's look at what the New Testament, and especially the epistles of Paul, have to say about God's call. Ephesians 4, verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Every Christian has been called, a calling that is from God. In the scripture to the Ephesians, Paul talks about one's manner of life matching God's call on their life. In other words, our way of life, our way of living, must match God's call. There must be a consistency and a continuity between these two things, the call of God and our way of living. This is Paul's point. Ephesians 4.4 There is one body and one spirit, just as also you have been called in one hope of your calling. Notice the connection between hope and calling. We have been called to be followers of Jesus, and there is a hope connected with this call. That's what Paul is saying here. We will talk more about hope later. Philippians 3 and verse 14. Paul talks about the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. God's call is an upward call. It's a heavenly call. It's a call from above. 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 11. Paul says to the Thessalonians, so we keep on praying for you, asking our God to enable you to live a life worthy of his call. Paul's prayer is that they would live a life in keeping with their calling and destiny. Paul speaks to the church at Rome. He uses these words, You also are called of Jesus Christ. That's Romans 1.6. The believers in the church at Rome were called of Jesus Christ. The New Testament word for church, ecclesia, means the called out ones. Ecclesia is made up of two words, ek, which means out from, and kaleo, which means to call. So, thus we have the word ecclesia, translated church, which means called out from. So we're called out from something, and we're called on to something. We're called out from the world and were called to God. Colossians one verses thirteen and fourteen, for He has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His dear Son, who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. The church has been called out from the kingdom of darkness and called unto or the words here are transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. So the church has been called out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God. Paul encourages Timothy with these words, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he granted us in Jesus Christ from all eternity. That's 2 Timothy 1 and verse 9. Here again, Paul is saying that we have been called by God. We have been made holy by God according to his own purpose and grace through Christ. God has called us for a purpose. We have been talking about the calling of the believer. Paul wanted the believers at Ephesus to understand the hope of his calling. Hope is often connected to God's calling. We've seen this in Ephesians 1 verse 18 and Ephesians 4 verse 4. We've talked about this earlier. This calling we have in Christ is filled or infused with hope. The hope infused in our calling as a believer is intended to be a dynamic force in the life of a Christian. The believer's hope is an absolute certainty. When we're talking about hope, biblical hope, we're talking about an absolute certainty. An absolute certainty of future good. When the Bible talks about hope, it's not talking about wishful thinking, or I call this Hope so thinking. I hope I get a bicycle for Christmas. What does this mean? This means that maybe I'll get it or maybe I won't. I'm not really sure. So that's what we call hope so thinking or wishful thinking. Secondly, biblical hope is not positive thinking. I believe I'm getting a bicycle for Christmas. This means keep positive in your thinking and it will happen. Yet there's a clear absence of faith in this type of thinking. Our culture has redefined hope to mean a vague possibility. I hope it's going to rain today, but we're not really sure. This means it may rain or it may not rain. The dictionary definition of hope is this a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. In this definition, there is no guarantee that the expectation or the desire will happen. But biblical hope is much different from this. Biblical hope is always an absolute certainty. It is never a vague possibility. When hope is used in the Bible, it always speaks of absolute certainty. So let's look at what the New Testament has to say about hope. 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 10. Paul, speaking to the Corinthians, says this, Who delivered us from so great a peril of death, and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope. Paul says God is he in whom we have set our hope, and we can trust him because he is faithful. Our hope is not misplaced when it is placed in God. Colossians 1 and verse 5, Paul is writing to the Colossians, and he's talking about the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. Hope laid up for you in heaven. There is no danger of this hope ever being lost. Jesus is the source of this hope. It is a sure thing. There is no uncertainty about this hope. Colossians 1 and verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, and not move away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Paul again speaking here. He's talking about the hope of the gospel. And the hope of the gospel is not an uncertain thing. The gospel creates a hope in the believer. They have a certain and confident hope in the Lord. First Timothy 6 and verse 17 says this, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, nor to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. We are to fix our hope not on the uncertainties of this world, but on God Himself. We can't be certain that the things in this life can be depended on, but we can be certain that God will come through for us. Titus 1 and verse 2 The hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. The hope of eternal life is given to us by God, and this is certain. It is ours. It is certain, even though it is still in our future. Titus 3 and verse 7, Paul says this, Being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Because we have been justified by faith, we inherit the hope of eternal life. Again, there is no uncertainty about this. Hebrews 6 verses 18 and 19 tells us to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of our soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. In these two verses, hope is used three times. Look at what it says about hope. It says we are to take hold of hope. Why? Because it is certain. It says hope is an anchor to the soul. Because it is certain, we can rely on it. It says that hope is steadfast and sure. Therefore, we can rely on it. So what have we learned from these verses about hope? Let me summarize it for you. We've learned that God is faithful. Therefore, our hope is not misplaced. That there is hope laid up for us in heaven, and this is a certainty. We've learned that the gospel message creates hope in us as believers. That we are not to fix our hope on the uncertainties of this world because they are unreliable. Instead, we are to fix our hope in God. We have the hope of eternal life. This is a certainty. And we've also learned that hope is an anchor to our soul and it is steadfast and sure. When Paul talks about the hope of his calling, he wanted the Ephesian believers to understand that this calling from God is infused with hope and that hope is certain the second thing that Paul wanted the believers to understand was the riches of his inheritance. So that takes us back to Ephesians 1 and verse 18. Reading from the New American Standard Bible, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And then let's also read Ephesians one eighteen from the NIV I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. There are two possible ways of looking at this phrase, the riches of his inheritance. The most frequent use of the word inheritance found in the New Testament speaks of something given to the believers by God. God's people will receive a rich and glorious inheritance from God. The NIV conveys this idea. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the riches of His glorious inheritance in His holy people. The thought expressed here is that believers should consider and expect a rich and glorious inheritance to come. The inheritance His holy people will receive is rich, abundant, and glorious. The second view of this phrase, the riches of His inheritance, conveys the idea that God's inheritance is the community of believers themselves. God's people are God's inheritance. The New Living Translation captures this idea. I pray that your heart will be flooded with light, so that you can understand the confident hope He has given to those He called, His holy people, who are His rich and glorious inheritance. That's Ephesians 1, verse 18 in the NLT. God's holy people are His rich and glorious inheritance. The New Living Translation here appears to be saying that God's people are God's inheritance. God's inheritance is the community of believers. God views his people as a precious treasure. Christians are considered to be part of God's glorious inheritance and therefore are of great value to him. The Bible says, you do not belong to yourselves, for God bought you with a high price. That's 1 Corinthians 6 verses 19 and 20. The Father gave the most precious thing in heaven that he had to purchase and redeem sinful mankind. He gave his only begotten Son. We know how precious the Son was to the Father. That is how precious we are to the Father. The way that the Father views his only begotten Son is the same way that the Father views his redeemed people. God will inherit those whom he has purchased at a great price according to the riches of his grace. Paul tells us in Ephesians that in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. That's Ephesians 1 and verse 7. We are his glorious inheritance. God eagerly seeks to claim us as his own. When Jesus comes back, he will claim us to be his own. The natural man looks to his riches and wealth for glory and honor in this life. But God looks to his holy people and considers them his rich and glorious inheritance. God's redeemed people will bring glory and honor to God. Paul wanted the Ephesian believers to understand how precious they were to God, how precious they were in God's sight. They were considered by God as precious, treasured, and valuable, his rich and glorious inheritance. So let's look at what the Bible says about inheritance. Paul says in Ephesians 1 and verse 11, We have obtained an inheritance. This inheritance from God was obtained through Jesus Christ. What Paul says in Colossians explains this clearly. Paul says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That's Colossians 1 and verse 12. Paul also says in Colossians, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. That's Colossians 3 and verse 24. So in this verse, it says that our inheritance is Jesus. Not only is there a hope Connected to our calling, there is also an eternal inheritance connected to our calling. Those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. That's Hebrews 9 and verse 15. Peter describes the inheritance we obtain through Christ to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. That's First Peter 1 and verse 4. Ephesians 1 and verse 14. The Spirit of God guarantees that he will give us the inheritance that he promised, that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. We will receive the inheritance promised. It is guaranteed, according to the scriptures. He has purchased us to be his own people. We are God's inheritance. Both ideas about inheritance are found in this verse. God's people will receive an inheritance, and God's people are God's inheritance. That you may understand the consequences of being made a child of God. That you are a recipient of God's inheritance. And you are, as God's people, God's inheritance. He treasures you. He values you. You are His inheritance. If you are a child of God, then you are an heir of God. An heir of a glorious inheritance which God has provided for all genuine Christians through his son, Jesus Christ. Paul wanted these Ephesian believers to understand something, to understand, to get the full impact of this truth about their inheritance, that they would understand the consequences of being a child of God. The third thing that Paul wanted the believers to understand was the surpassing greatness of his power. Ephesians 1, verses 18 and 19. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. And reading that same verse from the New Living Translation, it says this. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in Him. The surpassing greatness of His power is demonstrated in the believer. There's a number of different ways God's power is demonstrated in the believer. The transformational power of salvation. The endurance given to the believer to overcome difficulties in life. The glorious state of the believer after death. All of these demonstrate the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in Him. The Christian has an incredible resource available to them. God's power. And we need to stop ignoring this resource that God has given us. Paul wanted these Ephesian believers to be aware of God's power and its availability to them. Paul used four different words for power in verse 19. Let's read it again. What is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. So there's four words for power used there in verse 19. The first word is dunamis, or it's translated power into our English. This refers to God's dynamic power available to the believer. A second word used in this verse is energia, from which we get our English word energy. That is the word working. It refers to the energetic power of God. The third word for power used in this verse is the word karatos. It's translated as the word strength. This is the power to overcome resistance. This word is only used of God, never used of a believer. The fourth word for power used in this verse is the word iskus. It's translated might. This is a power that God possesses, but he makes available to us. His might is available to the believer. Ephesians 6 and verse 10 says this, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That is the word iskus, used there for might. Look at this magnificent accumulation of words for power found in this verse, underscoring the magnificence of God's great power available to the Christian. Paul goes on to talk about three manifestations of God's power which are seen in Christ. This takes us from Ephesians 1, verses 19 through to verse 23. Let's look at these verses. First, God's great power was demonstrated in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. Ephesians 1, verse 19 to 21. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ, when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. These verses talk about Christ's resurrection from the dead, his ascension to heaven, and exaltation to a position of power at the right hand of God in the heavenly realm. Being on the right hand of God is a place of friendship, honor, and authority. And that's the place that Christ held. Christ's exaltation put him above all human and angelic authority. In the present age and in the age to come, Christ was exalted above all authority, human and angelic. The extent of Christ's power and authority has been emphasized and highlighted in the strongest possible terms in these verses. We must understand that his omnipotent power is available to the believer. That's what these verses are saying. Secondly, God's great power was demonstrated in Christ when he placed all things under Christ's feet. Ephesians 1 verse 22 And he put all things in subjection under his feet. Adam lost his headship over creation when he sinned. But Christ has been given authority over all creation. Ephesians 1 verse 10 And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. All of creation is under the authority of Christ. This will be fully realized in the future, but it is true right now. The extent of Christ's power and authority is further emphasized and highlighted in the strongest possible terms in this verse. Thirdly, God's great power was demonstrated in Christ when he was appointed as head over the church. Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23. And gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all things. Christ is the head of the church. As head of the church, his power is available to the believer. Christ's power and authority has been emphasized and highlighted in the strongest possible terms. Christ's resurrection from the dead, Christ's ascension to heaven, his exaltation to a position of power at the right hand of God, above all human and angelic authority. He is exalted to the highest conceivable dignity and honor. All of creation is under the authority of Christ. And Christ is the head of the church. He transacts all the affairs of his church and rules the universe. Such a formidable position that Christ holds above everything in creation. No one but Jesus can be exalted to this high position of power. Yet we are to understand that his omnipotent power is available to us, the believer. Christ in such an exalted position of authority and yet he dispenses that authority to us as believers. It's available to us and we need to take it. We need to use it. We need to walk in it. We need to understand this. This is what Paul wanted the Ephesian Christians to understand. The availability of Christ's power to them. In conclusion, the burden of Paul's heart for the Ephesians, his prayer for the Ephesians, was that they would know, that they would understand and experience all that is available to us as believers. To use Paul's words, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you would know, that you would know these three things. What is the hope of his calling? Hope Is infused and bound up in his calling to us to become a follower of Jesus. Hope is the anchor of our soul. It is steadfast. It is sure. What is the richest of his inheritance? We are his rich and glorious inheritance. God's people, the believer, we are God's rich and glorious inheritance. And we are also recipients of a rich and glorious inheritance? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? Look at the height of power and authority that Jesus possesses, that he ascended to. He is our Christ. He is our God. We are favored by him, valued and precious to him. His omnipotent power is available to us. Paul wanted the Ephesian believers to understand these three things. The place that they held in Christ. When we are in Christ... This is what is available to us. This is what Paul wanted the Ephesian believers to understand.